Welcome back to Footnotes, a history podcast focusing on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side, and those who lost. My name is Mark, and I am proud to be here in person, socially distant, with my best friend Kevin. Oh, for context, it is May 16th, 2020. This episode's probably not coming out until like the winter, at which point we may be back in quarantine. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? I hope this joke isn't incredibly crass based on the current state of the world. I know we recorded the last one like two weeks into quarantine. Oh my gosh, we did. Yeah, that was like forever ago. We've been we've been slacking on new episodes. Yes. Well, we, I. Right. Well, yeah. Time is pretty elastic these days. Yeah. Every day seems the same. That's the part where I start the episode, huh? Mm, usually. Yeah. Our episode follows the most dramatically incendiary part of the first Great Depression in the United States. People call the Great Depression the Great Depression because it was significantly more acute than any other economic downturn, but people forget that there was a roughly 20-year-long depression with all sorts of weird causes and economically confusing ideas from about 1873 to 1893. So there were two separate panics, basically, one 1873 and one 1893, that bookend, this really long period where though people's lives were generally improving, there was constant unemployment, constant recessions, constant... Um, crashes in the market where all of a sudden all the farmers can't sell their wheat. Now there's 20% unemployment in Pittsburgh for some reason. You know, random explosions of economic upheaval and then social upheaval following it. This is the era of the rise of American labor, where the working man started to say, hey, if I join up with all of these other guys working in the factory and I quit all, and we all quit all at once, the factory owners are going to have to do something. And so that's what our story is about today. It's probably the most classic example of that kind of upheaval, which is the Pullman strike in Chicago. And this is one of those stories where there is a dream of a utopia that quickly devolves into a dystopia, and then there's a huge reaction to it. So we're going to be in 1893. That is... Not a good time in um, American history for quite a few people. This is when the United States is filled with immigrants. The United States is filled with these really low-quality places that people live that are just filled with disease, true slums. But there's a general belief that you can make it if you try here. That's the basic idea, right? Because of how bad the situation was for urban housing, people live in, again, these tenements, sometimes 10, 15 people crammed to a tiny room. Right now we're in a room that's what, 10 by 10. Imagine having six people sleeping in this room. That's, that's cramped. And they're mm-hmm. sleeping in bunks and they're working 12 to 14 hour days. Kids are still working in factories and in coal mines and these dangerous jobs. There's no workers' compensation. Life is really harsh for people in this situation. Is this one of those situations where you almost have company towns? That's where we're going with oh, this. okay, great. Is this is company towns. Well, company towns were one of the ways that people in the the ruling class, you can say the industrial class, the guys who own the factories, own the companies and their managers that worked with them, that was a way for them to control their workers in a way that they could have a meaningful impact of their life. All over the United States were these usually semi-formal company towns. Um, a classic company town is where there's a factory and then there's the town outside and the people actually have to pay for all of their, their rent, their food, their supplies using like a company currency. Um, so that's one way. But most of the way Monopoly usually... Monopoly money. It's kind of like Monopoly money. Yeah. It's called script usually. Yep. And that's one way of doing it. Usually it's a little bit more informal. There's a, you know, there's a town next to the mill. There's a town next to the factory, and most of the people in the town work at the factory, but the factory doesn't actually exert overt control over the people. Right. It's not quite as bad as like West Virginia coal mines at the time kind of thing, yeah. where you've got real company town, company police, the whole thing. It just it varies from place to place, and this, yeah. it's this way in Europe to an extent as well. It's just the way things were run. We, we got to remember that labor existed because there were these vast masses of people that were required to do 
anything. You don't build a railroad with a backhoe. It didn't exist. Mm -hmm. You need a hundred Irish guys with sticks to dig a hole in the ground. And that's hard labor. That's not something that is easy on the body. They are living in these really cramped conditions. It's, it's not a healthy environment. So eventually these people are hard as nails, oftentimes getting very frustrated. So in comes this guy named George Pullman. And he is a very intelligent engineer. And he wants to try to solve this problem of just the terrible conditions of the working man and what people thought of as the terrible social conditions of the working man, which was they drink too much, they beat their wives, they are completely unclean, they swear too much, they help spread diseases wantonly. Name a bad thing that a person can be accused of. And that's what people in high society, the middle class and the upper class, they thought of people. No self-improvement, no cleanliness, no godliness, none of that. And this is the development of that middle class progressive movement to try to improve people's life, but also improve the way they make their decisions. So keep that in mind that there's this big movement kind of above the working class trying to get them to be better, to say it simply. Pullman is this fascinating guy because he was clearly a brilliant man, brilliant businessman, and brilliant engineer. It's kind of hard to judge some of these industrialists too harshly when they simply were brilliant men. And so what Pullman did is he, from a very young age, he invented a, a machine that could jack buildings and raise buildings. Because all throughout the United States, they, they literally moved cities in the 1850s, 1860s, because a lot of cities were originally built where like rivers meet the lakes or rivers have nice shallow spots, but they were usually very boggy. And bogs bring mosquitoes, bogs bring fevers, things like that. And so they wanted to raise these cities up and build new roads on them and things like that. Just improvement in an engineering fashion. Chicago was one of the cities that was completely raised above the ground level, and then they just paved it all over, and they made their own streets above the ground. Um, city of Sacramento has an entire, like, undercity because it flooded so badly that they had to raise the city. So Pullman invents it and patents a device that allows these cities to be raised, and he makes a living there. But as he's working, He's traveling back and forth across the northern Midwest, and he finds the railroad travel, which is still pretty new when he's doing this, maybe 10, 20 years old total, incredibly uncomfortable. It just, he couldn't sleep on these railroad cars because there wasn't a compartment for people to sleep in. It was basically just flying coach. There, that was the only option. Flying coach, but for like two weeks. <laughs> yeah, and because it took a long time, it, way quicker than on a horse or whatever. But he was, well, I want to invent something that makes it so that you can have overnight travel that's comfortable. So he invents what's called a palace car. He has a couple of really unique and innovative hatch designs and things that allow it the space of this rail car to be used extremely efficiently. Basically, he had that spatial understanding that he could take a small space and kind of Ikeaify it. Just everywhere stuff is put. There's no wasted space, but there's but it feels open because of the way he he just figured out there's all the good, angles. A good sense of of space and mm -hmm. kind of that feng shui kind of thing. Yeah, he makes this really, really ornate palace car and it's really popular. People are like, this is amazing, but it's too expensive. And he he fails initially and then he actually runs away to one of the many gold or silver rushes, is fairly successful over there because he's a great businessman, and returns with a lot of ideas. And he puts together a palace car that, though expensive, clearly becomes a successful endeavor. One of the ways he becomes successful is he hires African-Americans, specifically African-Americans that were fleeing the South at the time, as his porters. And at the time, though we can definitely look back at that and be like, so he made them servants? He did. But it was widely viewed as giving jobs to these people. And so they were also very, very, very good at their jobs. They were very well paid. And so now there's this bit of a, ooh, there's, there's that, I get a servant every time I'm in a palace car. And they're paid pretty well. And this is a really nice experience. Yeah, it's one thing to have a servant. It's another thing to have a servant that you're paying well. Yeah. That's a, that's a special level of look how fancy I am. Exactly. I mean, if you look at their pay, it's probably way, way, way lower than we would think acceptable. But for the times, right? There, you always got to remember that in history. Yeah, there. 
history operates on a sliding scale like none other. It has to. Yeah. Because our, our views and judgments change. He becomes massively successful. And most of his industry is making these cars. But he also has his cars on the railroad tracks. And there's hundreds of different railroad companies at this point, all owning little bits of track that all crisscross and interlap in these absurdly complicated maps. And he makes a little bit of his money with these porters and with um, some of the rail traffic that he gets. But he doesn't own his own railroads. He just supplies the palace cars. And so what he decides to do is he has this vision that he's going to start to solve the labor problem, those social problems of the working class, by producing a utopian town called Pullman, Illinois. And it's just to the south of Chicago. It's now completely subsumed in Chicago. But this town would be set up in a way that the aesthetics of the town and the organization of the town would provide a better environment in every possible facet for the people who live there. And the people who live there would overwhelmingly be people working in his massive factories. What a beautiful, high-minded concept that you can just see going awry so fast. So here's how this town works. Here's how the Pullman Utopia begins. It begins with a massively brilliant, successful engineering project. They drain, they actually produce an artificial lake. Um, they set up the most efficient sewer system in the United States. And they set up a very efficient, like, gridded street setup, big wide avenues with big trees. Every house has a front lawn. Every house has a beautiful, easy to keep clean facade. All the sewage drains straight, straight away into a Pullman-owned farm that is perfectly run and successful and growing all sorts of local food. Um, there's a railroad depot that lines up straight to the city where all the be most beautiful buildings are there. There's a gorgeous ornate church and um, hotel and uh, civic center, and all of these places are big and grand and just beautiful. There's a library that is so completely stocked with books that it's hard to describe just how beautifully ornate this library was. And everyone in this town benefited from that tremendously. Lots of newspaper observers and various articles and journalists um, article writers and journalists would come to this town and just gawk at how perfect it was and talk about all the amazing things that you would have in Pullman. And they're not wrong. They had the lowest death rate in the entire country. No one died of disease. There was almost no need for police. It was an incredibly safe and comfortable place. I think there was one doctor in the town. The town has tens of thousands of people. Wow. That's a very low rate because no one was getting sick to the extent they did in Chicago, for And they're example. working in the Pullman factory. And they're working in the Pullman factory. So is, is that doctor dealing with, like, factory injuries as well, or...? Yeah. Um, there are some workers' compensation stuff through different corporations at this time, and I believe that Pullman has a pretty good um, policy for probably, that. Probably definitely very good for the time, once again, operating on that sliding scale. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you're starting to get an idea that this is a beautiful place. And remember, it's done... I mean, I'm also getting a very Stepford Wives vibe. It is a very Stepford Wives vibe. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm getting that, like, uh, this, is the, this is the first five minutes of a 75-minute horror film. Yeah. But all of these things are accurate and will continue to be accurate about the town throughout this whole story. Okay. This is a healthy place. It's only creepy because we now have that modern lens. We do, and... Not even saying that it is creepy. It feels creepy in a modern context because we have seen so many of these perfect suburban theoretical societies and planned communities. We've seen Disney try it. We've seen so many different people attempt to build the perfect town. And it either ends in, it just doesn't work, or it ends in like, you know, ironic catastrophe. Oh, this is a going straight in that direction. Oh, we, I assumed. This is what I've all those things are based on. Because I've never been to Pullman, so I assumed that's where we're going. <laughs> the purpose of this town, remember, was to improve the improve the lives of the people, but also lead them on a path of self-improvement. That's a different argument. There's, there's a big difference between uh, the owner of this factory saying, if I provide my workers with a healthy environment, I will get better, more engaged workers that are more loyal to me. But then it's another step forward to say, maybe a step backwards to say, these people would otherwise be drunken, and fighting and like lascivious and all these bad things unless I provide this for them. I am providing them a place for self-improvement. We're starting to we're starting to 
edge into uh, stripping some self-determination away from some people. Exactly. The word starts to be floated around paternalistic. Mm. He knows better than they do. Yeah. So how does that spark itself up in this town? How is that represented in this town? Well, it's represented very simply. The people can't own their own homes. He will not allow workers to buy the homes because he owns all of the land, he being Pullman and his corporation. So the Pullman Corporation owns all of the land, owns all of the buildings, and refuses to sell them to the workers. So they don't own their homes, they rent their homes. Secondly, Pullman was a very good businessman, and his company paid out great dividends throughout all of this, including the recession and depression. But he was making an investment return on the buildings. He had a certain rate he had to force rent to be in order to make money off of these buildings. So rent isn't going to change no matter the circumstances. But also, if he controls the entire city, he controls the sewage system, he controls everything, how much self-government can the people that live there really have? The answer is very little. Technically, it was a part of the city next door. It was a part of its you know, political entity, the local government. But it's moderately unincorporated, that kind of It thing. is moderately unincorporated, and it's also not large a enough. Bit, a little bit of a Vegas vibe if there was a guy who just was the king of Vegas. The same idea, yeah. right? That kind of like governmental lines get just blurry enough that something bad's about to happen. And the town next door was just Hyde Park. I just remembered that. Um, oh, see, I know Hyde Park. <laughs> It's bigger than yeah. Pullman. It's got many, many more people. And so because Pullman's part of that governance, he doesn't have control over the local government, but he highly, uh, George Pullman aggressively tries to influence the government. And, and it's done in that kind of like, he has people spying on his workers. He's afraid that his workers are going to fight back and do what is in their, not in their best interest. So he has like, company spotters watching people and making sure that for their own good. for their own it's such good. a big brother vibe it is and he's making sure that they don't try to strike he won't let people speak at the civic center who dis you know, have ideas that are too disparate from his it's going so creepy so fast but also even though there's these beautiful this beautiful full library the cost to get a library membership is so high that no one is a member of the library oh. so the library is deserted every day the church, that's this gorgeous church, it's a different color, stone than the rest, and it just stands out. Um, the church is so expensive that it takes years for there to be a congregation there. Everyone has to go to church at a different place, like on a different city. It's too expensive. So this town is absurdly expensive because it's in these people's best interest. That actually seems to be working pretty well when times are good. The people do not have enough self-determination to be able to control their own lives, and it starts to grate on them. And there's there's pushback against this, against this, against this. You know, hey, can I can we buy our own homes? Why can't I have that self-agency? It starts to get bad to the point where people are having to sublet out rooms to afford to live in their houses. Because rent's so high. Anytime there's a downturn and wages are cut, people really start to suffer. Well, that doesn't become too bad until 1893 when the economy completely crashes. Suddenly, workers are receiving huge wage reductions. It depends on the job they have. I'm assuming the rent stays exactly where it has to stay. The rent stays exactly the same mm -hmm. because he needs to return his investment. So he'll reduce the, the pay for some of these people up to like 80%. Mm. Well, most people, it's less than that. And a lot of, the, a lot of his employees were already in arrears on their um, loans, which of course are going through the Pullman Bank at the center of the city. Of course. And the first thing they have to do with their paychecks with some leniency is pay their rent. So there are instances where a person works on reduced hours, on reduced wages, and then goes to get their paycheck and all but one cent of their paycheck goes to their rent. And they go home and they're, they have no money. Mm -hmm. They worked and they have no money and they're being extorted to continue living in this place. Now the simple fact of the matter is the people in this town who are in the worst jobs are suffering the most. And they begin to suffer through the winter of 1893 for quite a bit of time. So 1893, the market crashes, and then these reductions start to come into effect. And through the winter of 1893, 1894, you see these workers start to starve. They 
They are unable to make any money. They're unable to find work. They're living in these incredibly expensive places. And you're starting to see way too many people live behind the scenes. The facade of these houses is pretty, looks good. There's flowers in the windows, manicured lawns. The streets are all swept and clean. There's no garbage anywhere. There's 30 people living in a 900 square foot house. And it's absurd. And not even a lot of those people necessarily are, you know, working at the Pullman factory. A lot of them are just kind of unemployed laborers. At this time, there was just the World's Fair in Chicago, and there's like 100,000 extra people in Chicago with nothing to do. So there's a lot of people that are very unemployed, that are not local to the area, that are just kind of milling around. That's not good either. Well, to focus on the Pullman people for a second, they decide to start to agitate for a strike. Enough of them walk out after they try to um, negotiate with Pullman and his vice president and other guys like that. And they are simply told, no, we're not going to negotiate with you. Anytime the economy crashes like this, we have to cut wages. And they're like, well, why can't we have a lower rents? Because I have to return on my investment. Deal with it, is basically his response. Right. Right. You I mean, there's all sorts of nuanced details yeah. and things. Try, try things, eating less. Try not being cold in the winter. It, it's literally that. And up until this point, though he's paternalistic, you can really see lots of beneficence on the part of George Pullman. He is trying to make these people have a better life. He is producing a successful company. He is giving them a job. He is giving them a place to live, all that stuff. But when they're challenged with their circumstances and he completely just ignores them and like very caustically just tells them, go deal with it. I am not going to negotiate with you, period. What other choice do these people have? Right. I, I've lived in Chicago. Winter there, not great. No. Not great. Very windy, very cold. Very cold. It's a wind chill place. Yes. Cuts to the bone, as they say. Yes. When they go on strike, it's not the entire company, and the reasons for that will start to become important later as the strike spreads, to say the least. It's mostly the lower wage workers, the ones who are most affected. They're the ones who go on strike. Um, the actual cars and all the porters and the people who run the cars on the railroad tracks, they don't go on strike. And many of the more um, successful, I would say better trained workers, the ones that have a clear skill, are also much more resistant to this kind of strike. But you see a huge portion, a crippling portion, go on strike. Pullman, and, that's, and that's what's important there, mm-hmm. is crippling. Anytime these strikes happen, it's just a game of... Will the, will, the, will the value loss to the company be a breaking point before starvation becomes a breaking point to the, to the workers? From the very beginning, everyone knew the strike would fail. That's the thing that is to be remembered here because Pullman had other factories. He was able to shift his production well enough. He was still um, he was putting out contracts that he was losing money on to maintain his business. And then he was just dipping into reserves and things like that. So he was running this really well behind the scenes. But this strike goes on for about six weeks, and there is a huge amount of focus on it because the Pullman, the city of Pullman, had been so strongly lauded for its perfection, and it was the way of the future. And if everyone just did this, the world would be a better place. And yet, this is the place where there's this aggressive, rather well defended reasons for its strike. People started to say, well, why can't they get some form of relief? Big mm-hmm. relief organizations are set up to give food and money, and it's like bare bones assistance, uh, subsistence to these people. And so the strikers just kind of keep pushing and plodding along as their names get written down on blacklists, as their livelihood is likely going to be ended with the hope that eventually he'll negotiate and just give them some relief. As this strike develops, there becomes a generalized motion in favor of a broader strike against the railroad company. This is all about the railroads, and it starts to spread. And you see partnership develop between railroad railroad workers and Pullman factory workers. Since their products are so closely intertwined, and since there is a relative similarity between what they work on, there's a lot of overlap in terms of, well, my brother works for the railroad, and I work for the Pullman factory. And the frustrations of everyone's... pay is being cut across the board, whether you work for a railroad, you work for the Pullman factory, and yet the costs of living aren't really changing, that frustration begins to heighten. 
There have been lots of strikes in the past 20 years because of these various conditions, with the conditions for the workers not really ever seeming to improve. They seem to strike and it, they fail. In steps an organization that had just successfully run a strike. You may recognize the name of the guy who runs the organization, Eugene V. Depps. People who just study a tiny bit of history, you will see his name really quick. People who don't like 19th century history will not know him. Here's why he's important. He ran on the socialist ticket for president five times. Mm, okay. And he had he got 6% of the vote in one election. Six? Six. That's a lot a, for a socialist. And he was actually the fourth party in that election. Wow. There's a super split election in 1912 that's very interesting. And he ran an election um, later on in, from jail. Okay. Episode on this guy coming soon. Jesus, this is cool. He's an interesting guy. He He's, seems footnoty. He is a bit footnoty f for real. And this is his beginnings. So okay. this, this is the beginning of this guy. And he, um, he gets this union together called the American Railway Union. Okay. The ARU, the American Railway Union, is a unskilled workers union. Okay. That's a big difference from the unions that already existed on the railroads. There were, they were called the Railroad Brotherhoods, and they represented the skilled workers. Basically, the workers that didn't really matter what was happening economically, they were useful enough to not ever really suffer. As a result, they had a skill that the companies needed and not everybody could do, so they always had a better bargaining power. And these unions were inherently much more conservative. They didn't want to strike. They just wanted their workers to maintain their basic status of successful working class. Yeah, not, not being on the brink of dying every time the economy downturned. No, and to be fair, um, that's why these, uni these unions were never that successful in the United States. That's why these strikes were never that successful in the United States. It's because there was always this component of, well, I made sure I learned a skill. That's why I have a better life than the rabble down below me. I, I understand those are good worker people. I usually, they're usually in semi-support of the strikes, but like, I did something to make my life better, so I'm just going to keep continuing my basic yeah. success. And you're not going to risk that mm -hmm. for people that you consider to be below you on the on the social structure. At least in these situations, especially yeah. with these conservative unions. Like I was, I was recently. I'll bring it up again. I was recently uh, reading up on the West Virginia strikes uh, after the after the Civil War, mm -hmm. and those those unions are brutal and aggressive and to be fair the the coal companies that they were striking and unionizing against were also much more brutal and aggressive yeah. than what we're seeing from Pullman we're seeing in those in those West Virginia coal mines you're seeing these these insane like brutal privatized police forces assassinating people who even start agitating a little bit yeah uh if you are a union man you are at risk of dying for walking into the wrong part of the state that kind of thing it's interesting to be seeing a much earlier proto version of this kind of thing but much more i guess we'll say it with giant italics civilized version yeah. of that where there's not these assassination attempts at the slightest hint of unionization but also the unions are much less aggressive in their in their willingness to strike and seize the means of production and all those kinds of those They kinds seem of to ideas. take a more economic approach, a I am worth more to you. Very libertarian approach versus like, like I said, like versus like the seizing the means of production kind of thing. They yes. like, I work to make my life better and now yes. I'm just trying to establish safety for mine and my kind kind of thing. Yeah. I, they have more of a worth economically to the company that gives them bargaining power that doesn't require them to do anything extreme. They can just say, well, you, if you get rid of me, your company suffers. So just pay me 10% better when the times are good. Mm -hmm. Don't slash my wages this bad when times are bad. And we're good. Yep. There's a great book, um, which will go in the show notes. It's called It Didn't Happen Here. And it's all about why socialism, labor unrest, didn't ever establish its own functioning political party that was not just an ephemeral part of politics. Though Debs eventually becomes the leader of the Socialist Party, he, he peaks at 6%. Yeah. In every single other country in the world, within the westernized dem democracy system, there is a socialist party. Mm -hmm. Even Canada has one. That is a third party there. That is a successful, that runs provinces. There's the Labour Party, with a U, in Britain. Oh, the Brits. You, you start to see that. We should do another episode about killing the English. <laughs> <laughs> it's history. It's, that's everything. 
But in the U.S., we didn't do that. We had these conservative unions that were all about, no, you, if you join our union, you're guaranteed to have a better life, but you have to have a skill. And so yeah. the American Federation of Labor, which was run by an English guy named Samuel Gompers, that was how he viewed things. The Railroad Brotherhoods are along these same lines, and they resist the strike. They don't really have any fa favor for the Pullman strike. But the American Railroad Union, with Debs in charge, had just won a strike against a specific and very powerful railroad called the Great Northern Railroad. It had done a very, very focused calm and to be fair pleasant strike he made sure his workers all left they all abstained from any sort of violent or aggressive activity they were at paragons of virtue and then they gave very reasonable demands and the company responded with okay and it moved on from there now behind the scenes the railroad companies were not happy right and they form what's called the general managers association which is the most bureaucratic title of all time. Yes, it is. And this is an Hermes organization... Hermes would love that. <laughs> Hermes would love that. If you don't get the reference, go watch Futurama. Exactly. If you don't get that reference, be in your early 30s currently. <laughs> <laughs> they form a group of about 20... Um, it's a score, about 2,000 weird archaic words are used in the book. Um, oh, score. Four score. And uh, well, How many score was this? One. One score. There's one score. One score in about three and a half days ago. Yes. And you get this organization <laughs> so of railroad companies, and it's all the, the, the upper level management, and they say, all right, we don't want this strike to be successful again. And so all the, it's like the 20 or, uh, railroads around Chicago. That's how many companies are just in Chicago because it's a major railroad. How many railroads? There are. And they all end up buying each other and stuff later. It's, of course. It's chaos. It's America. It's, it's America. It's America. It's America. Yeah. You, you start with... 800 people starting the same company, and then 20 minutes later, it's Disney. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's like, wait a minute. <laughs> but they... Monorail, monorail, monorail. <laughs> they decide to if get, you don't get together. get that reference, be slightly older in your 30s yes, right now. Yes, <laughs> yes. That was from like 1993, man. <laughs> I think it's like season four of The Simpsons. Oh, it's so good. These companies gather together, and they say, we will not allow a strike to, to beat us. And they come up with two basic concepts. The first is, if there is any sort of strike brewing, they're going to import people from uh, the east coast of the United States, and they're basically going to bring in scabs, strike breakers. Yeah. Uh, they are aware that unemployment is ridiculously high everywhere. So by bringing in these people, they're going to never have a shortage of workers that they can bring in. And on top of that, they are going to always work together. All the railroads will always do the same things to their lines. They're all going to have the exact same response. They're all going to gather and just coordinate very Don't you effectively. Love it when the upper class unionizes. Yes, they we'll, make, we'll make our own union with blackjack and hookers. <laughs> I think we've had that joke like four times on this podcast. <laughs> God. Matt Groening is getting a lot of free push on this episode. Yeah, right? But you can see now that there's these two parties developing. This little strike in dystopian Pullman starting to explode. Now, Debs actively argued against his union to start the strike because he didn't think it was the right time for it. He didn't think they had enough support. He was like, this isn't, we don't have enough support in the press. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough time to do this right. It just, this is not a good time. Well, the people ignored him, and there is a spontaneous burst of strike activity on every railroad line. And this starts in mid-June in 1894. And remember, the, the Pullman strike had only been going on for about six weeks. And then once the strike takes hold, you see people, starting with the switchmen, the guys who just control the, the railroad from splitting from one railroad to the next, which is yeah. a very important job at this point, but very relatively unskilled. You pull a lever. You, um, you see them leave first. And then you see a variety of other jobs leave. The Railroad Brotherhoods don't. And everyone working on the cars don't. But the infrastructure around the railroad system, keeping the cars going to the station, leaving the station, and going from track to track, the workers on that part, they all strike. Overwhelmingly so. To the point where railroad traffic grinds to a halt. Literally. That's, it's such a common figure of speech. I guess thing, you're right. Yeah, when things grind to a halt. That's In this it, case, they literally yeah, do grind one, to a yeah, halt. Yeah, don't give me that weird look. This is one of the few times that it's not metaphoric. Ugh. 
so it started as a justified strike by the Pullman workers, which lasted with some support as well as some press ridicule for a period of about six weeks, has now developed into a frenzied strike by a nascent union, new structure of a union. There were not a lot of unskilled unions before the American um, Railroad Union going up against the combined power of some very powerful railroad companies. Now, like all things, this becomes political fairly quickly. The fear with any strike or any labor rebellion in this case is that violence and chaos will spread in the wake. Now, Debs always tried to counteract that by having people that were participating in the union, having those workers follow pretty strict protocols for their behavior. No drunkenness, no rowdy outdoor behavior. You have to keep yourself on a tight leash so that the businesses cannot criticize the strikers based on their behavior. Right, especially in an environment like the Pullman City where it's like, we, we are bettering humanity through this project from their, from their natural state, quote-unquote. If you're going to argue that as workers, they deserve a better, a better life, they have to prove that they deserve it in a way, right. which puts a lot of the burden on the organizers of these strikes because that's not reasonable. You're never going to prevent, pre- present your workers and then prevent your workers from occasionally not doing the right thing or having this strike and this activity begin to unleash anger on these railroads from outside of the strike. The fear of the businesses and the General Managers Association was not just that they were losing money. Of course, that's a huge part of it. That's their businesses. That's what they do. But that they would have tons of sabotage done to their, to their tracks. They would have their cars flipped and burned. And that the following rioting and poor behavior would leave them in a position where they were not profitable at all and would end up going into receivership. They would have to, they would all lose their, they would lose everything. So there is a fear of the people. The railroads are not popular at this time. And they're not popular because they frequently charged exorbitant rates to do anything. They had a sort of monopoly on the kind of travel and infrastructure that the the country was running on. Once you improve trade and traffic to that extent that railroads did, that's an immense economic power to these railroads. And of course, in a time where there was very little business regulation, these companies abused that power and it strongly affects the working class. And in fact, that in many cases, they couldn't even travel on the railroads, so they're working on them. They can't afford it. Remember, the palace cars that Pullman makes are not for the working class. They have, I mean, there's porters on these things. You can't, you have to be middle class or upper class to even use them. So there's a divide there as well. The General Managers Association starts to call on local law enforcement and local marshals to try to prevent any sort of social flare-ups, aka riots, from damaging their property. In many cases, these deputies that they hire are the worst of the worst. These are not great guys, and they're very ineffective. And also, in many cases, they are, let's just say tacitly supporting the strikers, Hmm. as are many of the police officers. They are in the same basic mindset. When that happens, and these deputies tend to be a little heavy-handed in their approach to the strikers and anyone who's starting to mess around with the railroads, things begin to get a bit ugly. Through the end of June into early July, if you read the newspapers, you would think that Chicago was a bloodbath. According to the newspapers, which at this time were very, very conservative. So not super friendly to the uh, strikers. Not at all. There are tales of trains stopping and massive crowds blocking the trains. There are tales of fires and arson, drunken mobs, and... People resorting to their baser ways. Exactly, in the most lurid Mm -hmm. of writing. To be fair... There are mobs. Right. And there are some serious instances throughout the, 
like I said, late June, early July of 1894 up to about July 4th, where a train car would arrive at the station, a massive mob would run over and tip it. It would fall onto its side and the mob would disappear. And it's a much easier to tip a rail, railway car than it is to revert it back to its original spot. It's like a cow. I'm, I'm surprised that it's even possible for a bunch of people to tip a train car over. That seems like a ton of work. They're top heavy. I guess that's fair. It's Still, just, yep. But yeah, you say like it's it's much easier to flip it over than it is to put it back. And I'm going like, well, well yeah, but it seems like it's really hard to tip it. Apparently, they, they very quickly figured out a pretty easy way to pull its weight in one direction and tip it. God, you got to just love. If there's one thing humanity's good at, it's like, oh, we found a really effective way to break this thing. Yeah. We're great at that. We're really good at unmaking something. So what does the General Managers Association do when they're finding that their trains are shut down? There are these mobs. Their property is actively being damaged. It's starting to get ugly. They try to call on the governor of Illinois, John Altgeld, who is a supporter of the strikers, mind you. He's a Democrat, part of the Democratic Party at the time that was pro-union. Mostly it becomes the Republican Party for a while, but it's very confusing. And Altgeld says, well, I... I gave you my deputies and you have the police force. I think I can handle it. They go, no, you like the strikers too much. We're going to go to the district attorney of the United States and we're going to call on the president to call on the army. We're going to, we're going to scale we're this really up. We're really escalating here. Yeah. That got out of hand fast. Well, it turns out that the attorney general of the U.S. was a guy named um, Richard Olney. And Richard Olney was an active proponent of the railroad industry because that's how he got his start as a railroad lawyer and was still on the board of a railroad company. And railroad lawyer sounds like something that like Matthew McConaughey would have played. Yeah, you're right. But you, you can kind of see that the, there's a see, conflict yeah. of interest here going I'm just on. a simple railway lawyer. And somehow the movie would be great. Right. But okay, so we got Matthew McConaughey as the railroad lawyer here. But All right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Olney is so in favor of the railroads. It's like painful. The bias is so obvious. Right. And he calls on to his buddy, Grover Cleveland, the president of the United States, in his second non-consecutive term. Yay, trivia. And um, he was <laughs> you're, a, you're welcome if that wins you uh, a free beer in a couple of months. Um, he's, he actually won the popular vote three elections in a row, but lost the second election in the Electoral College. He won them all by like 1%. It's, wow. it, it's like razor-thin elections at this time. And uh, Cleveland said, all right, we're going to send in the army because we can. But the problem is, Actually, what justification was there for this? Debs in the railroad union are like, wait, no, you can't. All we did was walk off from our jobs. We're not causing this. In fact, there's evidence we're not the ones doing it. How can you justify sending in the army to stop our strike? What did we do? This is just mobs being mad at the railroads. What is your legal justification? His legal justification is he hates you. <laughs> his, his real legal justification is he hates you. No, they justify it in the most murky way possible, but it does stand up to legal scrutiny. Here's how they justify it. All right. Railroads it. have mail cars on them, cars that simply transfer letters back and forth. Oh, federal property. It is federal property, and it is the <laughs> right of the feds to keep that moving. Now, Pullman Palace cars were put on all trains. And these were the cars that they were not allowing as the, the railroad workers. The way that they were mostly making their strike actually happen, probably should have said this already, but any single railroad car set mm. train. There we go. It's called a train. <laughs> what's, what's I that? haven't said the word train yet. What's, what's that word when a bunch of railway cars are all linked together? Oh my gosh, I have a toddler and she says... And, like, every time a train goes by, we go choo-choo train. I couldn't think of the word train. That's amazing. Have we really not said train no. once in this entire episode? I've said car the entire time. Oh, my They're gosh. called that, too. That's hilarious. The strikers wouldn't allow the trains to pass. They wouldn't switch the, the lines if it had a, a Pullman car on it. That's how the strike was functionally done. The problem is Pullman cars were put on mail cars because mail cars were put on every kind of train car. All of these trains were just a... A mishmash of things that had to get yeah. across the country. It's an agglomeration of like six different kinds of cars. Right. right. And you're in Chicago, which is like the hub of getting from the east to the west. Exactly. Yeah. There was no way to prevent a car from having both a Pullman car and a mail car. It was, you couldn't separate them in a legal sense. Right. To prevent the Pullman car and you would stop some mail cars. And it was too difficult to really divide say, that. You can't 
You can't break a Pullman car without breaking a few mail cars. You can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. It has been said once now. Yeah. And that's probably the that's probably good. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you? And so that was the justification to bring in the army. Mind you, the governor of Illinois was not happy about this. He felt he was skipped. He said, I can handle this just fine. In fact, it's my legal job to handle it. Right. This is not a situation justified for that, even though the local law enforcement was not really doing much. However, no one was getting killed in any of these riots, really even that injured early on. They were, they were getting ugly, though. Once the federal troops show up, there's that tipping point. There's that real big burst of anger. And that's when you start to see entire railroad cars in depots being burned flat. And, you, and there are legitimate wow. cases of a railroad losing its entire stock of supplies. Like the railroad is functionally destroyed by this. Mm-hmm. Now, it's difficult when you read in history to find people in favor of the railroads and the companies. And the book called The Pullman Strike by um, Almont Lindsay. It's a very old, very dry book, but it's very good at describing this whole story. He goes out of his way, the historian of that um, book, to like try to defend the actions of people burning these cars because it was just, it was just a few bad eggs. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, it kind of doesn't matter. This is the danger of these kinds of movements. You produce a lot of chaos, and that's what people were afraid of. Right. Now... Obviously, these people should have been able to go on strike, and these people should have been able to fight for their rights, but it's always going to suffer from the argument of, well, look what happens when you let the mob mob. They're going to do bad things. Even if the people who start this don't, they become blamed for it. Right. They, they, they end up being the representation of like literally a few individual bad actors in the situation. I mean, we see this with protests currently all the time, like in the last several years of Antifa protests and BLM protests and right-wing protests and all these things where you will have largely peaceful, largely constructive and productive protests. And then you will have a guy with a bike chain and a mask run into the fray and just cause chaos. And you have the people running the, organizing going, not that guy, not that guy. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He's there. He showed up to your party. And you're like, we didn't invite him. It's that exact problem. Yeah. And this is being fueled by the anger of the people and a lot of people who probably shouldn't have been there in Chicago anymore anywhere, holdovers from that fair. That's what the author of the book um, argues, which I think is a little disingenuous. I think strikers were participating in this to right. an extent. Right. Um, we know that because a bunch of them are killed later. But the press is saying that Chicago is this bloodbath, right? Now, there's a lot of independent obser- observation that most of Chicago is fairly calm, but when there is a big riot down the street, it lasts for a night, and it becomes the talk of the town, and the newspapers are saying how bad it was, and how and you see the flames burning in the distance, it's hard for people not to turn against the strike. And public opinion pretty aggressively turns against the strike. Remember, it was never supported by the conservative unions. They're still actively not striking. The Pullman cars are still trying to run on the tracks as much as possible. The federal army is there now. No one wants the federal federal army in their in their city. No, and these guys are starting to get billeted all over the place, and they're just there to, you know, basically shoot the rioters if the rioters decide to confront them. Mm-hmm. And you have that as the social mind, and then these riots start to get worse. And this is one of those things where the basic picture is the rioters overstep their their mob mentality, and in some instances start to get too rowdy, too aggressive, and rush people with guns and bayonets. And there are numerous instances where the riot has to be dispersed by shooting them. And you start to see the death count rise. It gets to up to about 30 in total over a wide variety of different events in different spots of Illinois and the surrounding areas. But the end result is just after July 4th, which was the peak of all of this, we see a burning out of the movement as people see that this strike has failed and the momentum is gone. The second thing that starts to destroy this strike is the federal government, I don't know what the right verb is, but they use an injunction against the strikers. Injunctions is that super legal word. And I admit I had to look up to make sure I knew exactly what it meant. It's basically where the government tells you 
you cannot do a specific activity. And in this case, because they were messing with the mail, they couldn't go on. The strike had to stop. You, they couldn't allow um, any of the union members to actively try to get more people to go on strike. That's what they weren't allowed to do. Someone could go on strike individually, but the union couldn't do anything to prompt that. So you basically had to sit down and shut up and watch. That makes it so the movement has to be organic and has to find a way to function without anything making it function. So it halts. But of course it doesn't. And Debs ends up getting chucked in jail for the first time. And it's because he, you know, the, the charges are trumped up and it's one of those things where it's, Really? He's gonna he's going in jail for that little infraction, but he technically broke the injunction, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. The movement is decapitated. Mm-hmm. Right I mean, at the same that's, time. That's the goal there. It's like we don't care what it is, if it's jaywalking, what? We just have to find a way to put him in jail so that the leader of this movement is no longer a public facing figure. That's what they did with the mafia a bunch. They, would, they did um, Al Capone went to jail for tax evasion. Yep. It's the same idea. Right, yep. it, it's and it's effective, clearly effective. You, the human beings get led, especially in these kinds of situations, high tense, high tension, high energy, and everything. You cut the head off. It's not like a hydra thing. It's not cut the head off and three more grow. It's you cut the head off and you hold, watch the rest of it fall to infighting. It's more like cutting the head off of a chicken. Yeah. It's going to run around circles for a while afterwards, but it's going to die. Yeah, it's going. It will bleed out. The story of the Pullman strike is fairly simple. Then there's this big burst, and then. It's just annihilated from the top down. The strikes flare up really aggressively in the West Coast of the United States. That's where they get bad. That's where a lot of the people are are killed, specifically in Sacramento, oh. where um, the Southern Pacific Railroad was the most hated railroad in the country because it had a monopoly over the state, and it was doing what monopolies do, passing go, collecting $200. And then another 200, and then another 200, and then another 200. And then handing script to the other players. Yes. And then beating them with their privatized police force. And so in Sacramento... Monopoly's gonna monopoly. <laughs> at the rail yards, which are now a polluted mess, they're still trying to fix them. There was a big unionized gathering, and they pushed back, and there was lots of violence, and lots of destroyed trains and things like that. And this flares up all over the place. And you get stuck in that same situation of you can't destroy the property of a business and expect your movement to win. It just doesn't work. Right. People, and we're really learning this right now, just want to have a relatively normal day-to-day existence. And if you are going to constantly press that normal, it will succeed for a while. You can incite their class divisions. You can incite their desire to help people who have been wronged, like the Pullman workers have and the railroad workers have. But in the end... They just want to go back to work, make as much money as they can, and get on with their lives. And they don't want to see burning rail cars. That doesn't work after a short period. Right. But this becomes very disappointing to a lot of reformers in the country because it takes the conservative corporate approach to improving people and just annihilates it. No longer can corporate welfare solve society's ills. They tried it with Pullman. It was aggressively praised. It was encouraged. People reproduced it to extents elsewhere, never to the same extent as Pullman. Pullman refused to give his workers the self-determination to make their own decisions, and they rebelled against him. Their strike fails, but it destroyed Pullman. It basically withers away and dies and gets subsumed by Chicago after this because everyone realized it didn't work. You can't tell people what to do and say it's for your own good and expect them to respond kindly. It's human beings don't work that way. Once they get pressured enough, they're going to rebel. And what many of them end up doing is they just left. I'm not going to work for this. I don't want to be spied on by my manager. I don't want to be judged because I want to go get a beer. I mean, that's the basic reality. It also, unfortunately, showed the collapse of the one, really the largest unskilled worker strike in the country. This is, might be the last real one. There's others, but this is the one where it was just, we are the workers and we will unite, and we lost terribly. The workers that were 
agitators for this are blacklisted for the rest of their lives and most of them die in terrible health and poverty. They cannot get work. Most of the workers return to their jobs. But that shows a lot of power of that business class. But it shows that that power is rested in a society that supports that power to an extent. In the book, it didn't happen here. Why the United States didn't become socialistic, didn't have much of a movement. The crux of the argument, and something I totally understand, is people just want to have the opportunity to make it, to make a good life. And the problem with these strikes, these unionized movements, is not the union and the negotiation of the union. Everyone likes that to an extent. It's when these strikes break down the ability for people to live that life where they can have that opportunity. And so the union just takes it all and disperses it. It goes against a fundamental philosophy of the United States. And what's so funny is every communist theorist, socialist theorist, thought that the United States was the most capitalistic country on the planet, which it is in many ways. Right. It should be the place where socialism grows because capitalism abuses people. Socialism will rise in that. Right, that's the core concept of socialism. You got got to go through some capitalism to get to some socialism. Yet from the very beginning, the strike is unpopular with everybody but the people participating in it and a group of like-minded people in like-minded situations, maybe 30%. But not a lot of empathy out there. No, it's, no, I want to go on my, I want to get on my train. Can you stop destroying my train, please? I, I, I agree, you should be paid better but don't destroy my train. Go away. And I don't want to support your movement ever again. The newspaper's telling me that too. Mm-hmm. My manager's telling me that too. And I kind of agree with that. I am a skilled carpenter. I am not going to ever go on strike because I have a skill. It's really hard to disagree with that to a full extent. When the strike produces massive sabotage, even if it wasn't the strikers themselves. But it, that's what the Pullman strike becomes, is that moment where U.S. society more or less says no to socialism. There are hundreds of other instances of strikes, some successful, some not successful, some violent, some not violent. But the ones that are more negotiating the workers' economic standing with reasonable goals and reasonable shutdowns slowly and successfully improve the country. These big walkouts and these big strikes almost invariably fail because they just don't work. They don't work here. They don't work here. Yeah. There's a, there's a little bit of talk at the start of this about this period of America, a lot of immigration and a lot of that kind of discussion of bootstrap mentality and everything. And it's so funny because I was just, I was just uh, producing a podcast a couple weeks ago where people were talking about the concept, the kind of disambiguated concept of the American dream Mm -hmm. and what it represented at its outset, what it has evolved to, what the aspirational concept of it is now and whether or not it works and whether or not it holds value to the people on this show. Very overwhelmingly, it 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 was a lot of, I just don't think it's a realistic thing to aspire to. I don't think it's the kind of thing that, it, it feels like a bill of goods that doesn't exist anymore. Like it is, I think there's more and more of a sentiment these days of the, like this concept of the American dream is almost just there for these kinds of things to go, look, every individual person has self-determination and, and if you want a better life, you can work for it on your own individually. Like, and, and it puts people in a position of going, Take what little comfort you can and trust that if you work hard, you will elevate yourself. And anybody who upsets the status quo endangers your ability to bootstrap yourself, regardless of the merits or or issues with violent protesting or massive, massive uh, interruption of day-to-day life and everything. I think America has a lot of built-in uh, intolerance for these kinds of strikes. Violent, even if you take the violence out and just have the the, the train tipping. It's the disruption. Yeah. The, if you, if, yeah. If you take the violence out of it and you just keep it at, it's it, the, the protest didn't sound like they were violent to other people beyond just flipping trains and stuff until the government sent literally the, like, the army in and the National Guard in to deal with these kinds of things. 
And it's so interesting that like, even with that, there was so little patience and sympathy because everybody else is like, it kind of, it's kind of like today when you see people on, 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 on TV making jokes when something bad happens to somebody who works in like fast food or something going like, that's why, yeah, that's why you go to college, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's just so callous towards an, another person. And like I said, this isn't so much about the merits of how the strike goes, but I just find it so interesting that that seems to permeate U.S. history is because the American dream concept feels so bootstrappy, even though bootstrapping is largely a myth. It just empowers people to go, gosh, I'm not getting my hands dirty for somebody who didn't bother to learn a a marketable skill. It goes a little deeper than that because you can now, you can make philosophical justifications and judgments based on that bootstrappy idea, right? Remember that the original phrase was supposed to be ironic. You can't pick yourself up by your bootstraps. It doesn't make sense. We've lost the irony in it. Yes, I know. It's crazy. But the idea is the U.S. was the first country to have legitimate, open and free democracy in the, the way that pretty much everywhere, again, in the Western and Southeast Asian and places like that have that democracy, right? Large areas of the world now do, overwhelmingly so, in broken fashions, but we all have it to an extent. Your sure. vote I mean, it's, it's not like ours isn't broken in its own ways, too. Like, yeah, but your vote does count right. enough, right? It's, it's dispersed, but it counts. But... Unfortunately, um, we do have pretty high social mobility. There is the ability to make a good life. That's why the people were coming here. There's some justification to those ideas. People still want to immigrate to this country because it is economically more open to be successful. In these areas in Europe that have major socialist parties, those people had to justify that they were humans that deserved the vote that deserve to have the respect of the government, and they weren't just the peasants. There's a big difference between that. And that's part of the American idea. To me, it has not been perfectly done and has completely left a ton of people out, and it is not acceptable or um, able to be gotten. I, there's a word that's better for that, but by attainable. all. Obtainable, thank you. Train. Yes. <laughs> people are left out. It's not obtainable by all. It's not acceptable to all. But it is available to an overwhelmingly larger number of people yeah. here it's, than elsewhere. Or at least it definitely wasn't then. It's legal here. Yeah. Which is a thing that isn't even the case in a lot of places today. Yeah, that's true. It is legal and encouraged and like set in stone yeah. constitutionally. Even Yeah, even like yeah, there is massive disenfranchisement and systemic issues in that. But I, I, I do see what you mean in the sense of like, Especially in this period of time that we're discussing right now, like there were places where you legally weren't allowed upward mobility. Yeah, you had you had a like, oh no no no, no. you were born a this kind of thing, and so legally you can work these six jobs and you can make this amount of money, and you can own a house this large, and that kind of thing. There were such institutions in place that you had to. There was only a few ways to move up in society. You either had to marry into it be successful in the army or be a wildly successful industrialist. That's how you had to do it in England, for example. They were locked in place. They were locked in place by where they lived and their accents, their names, everything. Or you can go to the United States and none of that matters. And in fact, we actively... Unless you were Irish. Unless you are Irish. But <laughs> even they yeah. broke through. So did yeah. the Polish. I mean, all these different people that moved in, they broke... They, they started with all of that stereotyping and they broke through because the basic nature of the government is if you want to go get it. Now, we are aware of the enormous amounts of things that block that, enormous amount of people that were left out of that. But even in in every case, that is the general goal of most people here. Yes. Yeah. And that's yeah. what makes these strikes unsuccessful is it pushes against that. Because even though you can look at it and say, well, you're poor too. Why don't you support these people gathering together? Because it just doesn't fit the ethos. It doesn't, it's the, but they're just getting something because they're agitating. They're not getting a skill and working hard. That bothers people for some reason. Yeah, yeah. People, the the dark side of that, like every single person has a right to self-determination. The dark side of that is that feeling of like, so if your life's not good, that's your fault. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's not it's, always that caustic, but it, right. there's always a tinge but, of that. Exactly. But that is the cyanide in the water of that kind of thing. Yeah. We are okay with having a very low minimum wage 
and much much worse like uh, working laws like as a country because it's always going to be the idea of well don't don't work there I know. How, how come you can't become a skilled engineer it's gone a little overboard too with how inflated the um i think the educational system is now with everyone having to get a bachelor's degree to get a quote good job go be, go be an electrician it's a great job and you just need to become an electrician the idea now is the only way to move up is to move up into the white collar world yep it's even spun that way yeah 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 jobs that pay really well that have like a strong union backing and will like give you really solid hours electrician like a skilled technical job kind of thing they're they yeah they somehow get viewed as the lower class yeah even though i'm a teacher a garbage man makes double what i started at (laughs) and they have a you know dirty early morning job and it's heavily unionized but those are the things those are skilled unions but they're looked down on. It's crazy. Looked down on. It's yeah. It. I mean, this podcast is going to very quickly go into a like, like Rise Brothers moment. But uh. <laughs> no, I just think uh, I try to encourage students to just get a skill. That's mm-hmm. all. That's how you move up in this society. Is you get a skill, and if you don't, it doesn't matter how justified it is in reality, philosophically, whatever, morally. That is how this works. You, you don't move up because of government largesse. You don't move up because of union organization. The viewpoint in general is go become useful economically. Otherwise, deal with it. It's so caustic, but it's just, it's the hand that we have here. Yeah. Oh, and it's it has crazy. generally worked for the overwhelming number of people pretty well. Sure. Unfortunately, yeah, the same the, people keep getting left out. That's the problem. there, And therein lies the issue as you go like... It works for what we would define a acceptable percentage of the population. Yeah. Increasingly less sometimes. Yeah. But like but like you said, the same groups always, always end up shorted on these things. I would not say that the workers at the Pullman factory or the railroad railroad workers would say that they were able to obtain the American dream. It wasn't. No. They were actively squelched in their attempt to bargain for a better position for their lives to better feed their families, et cetera, et cetera. And that is, in the end, I think inherently wrong. But it's just the way this country is. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Footnotes. To learn more about the Pullman strike, uh, you can check out any of the three books used in the research of this episode. Uh, We'll have those links in the show notes on this episode. If you want to discuss this episode with us or with anybody else who listens to it, you can uh, check us out on Instagram and on Facebook. We'll have those links as well. In order to seize the means of production, all you need is a set of bolt cutters. Until next time.